Well, when I was in the third grade, a long time ago, my family moved from California back to Texas. I was born in Texas and we went to California for a few months. And then we came back and my dad was, was called to pastor a church in Robstown near Corpus Christi. And I'll never forget my first day at our new school there in Robstown, Texas. I walked into the third grade classroom at Hattie Martin Elementary and I met the teacher and of course I received all the stares of the, of the kids, of the rest of the students in my class. My teacher, Mrs. Corder, C-O-R-D-E-R, Corder, uh, she, she showed me my desk, which happened to be in the middle rows, in one of the middle rows, about halfway down the row. So I was basically in the middle of, of the classroom. And uh, as soon as, I remember this, as soon as I sat down, the moment I sat down, of course I'm nervous, and so I sat down on my desk and immediately uh, the boy next to me just leaned over. He was the next row, but right beside me. He leaned over and he, he said, he said, hey, do you want to be friends? I was like, yeah. I mean, I knew I needed a friend, right? And it turns out we were great friends. Uh, his name uh, was Robert Garza and he and I were best friends for many years. We played together. We, we sang together. Uh, we studied together. We spent so much time together that people uh, began to think we were brothers. Uh, apparently, we looked a little bit alike, and we hung out together so much that people thought we were brothers. How many of you had a best friend in elementary school or during high or high school? Let me see your hands. You had a best friend, somebody you hung out with. Yeah, I think a lot of us did, probably most of us, if not all, well, we're in a series right now titled, How to Be a Christian Role Model. And we started this series talking about why we even need role models. Two weeks ago, why do we even need role models? I mean, don't we have Jesus? Isn't He enough? He is our model. We are to look to Him, and isn't He enough? Well, the answer is yes, we have Jesus, and isn't He enough? Uh, the answer is yes, but the answer is kind of also that depends I mean, certainly Jesus is definitely more than enough as a role model because in Him we see the perfect expression of what it is, what it means to be a human being that is surrendered to God's will and committed to living God's will. Jesus did it even to the point of death. So we have that perfect uh, example. But it's also clear from Scripture that God has determined that we have role models in our lives and that we be role models for others, not just for our children, certainly if you're, if you're a parent for your children, grandchildren, but also for other people around you. This is part of our expression uh, of being His children and, and His servants. And our, our key verse is found in Philippians 3.17, and, and this is a, the verse that I taught uh, two weeks ago, but I, I'm not going to go back and teach this, but I want to reread this. Uh, Philippians 3.17, it reads like this, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So he said, follow my example, you have us as a model, and the same way, keep your eyes on others who are uh, living as we do. In other words, they have us as a model too, then you follow them, you follow me. Uh, we're called to be models to each other. And, and the first week we spoke a little bit about uh, why that's important, why God chose that. 
So again, if you, if you missed that, uh, go back and listen to that or watch that video because I, I think that's a great foundation for the rest of this series. Well, last week we began to look at some biblical characters that uh, serve as role models for us. Last week we looked at the life of David and we saw how David had this faith-based optimism that was a that was a catalyst for a light that was filled with confidence. Even in his lowest days, the lowest points of his life, he was filled with confidence. He didn't live an easy life. We saw that he learned to face life every day with optimism. So we, we learned about David. Today, uh, then, it, I think it makes good sense, after considering David last week, to turn to David's best friend. And his name... Uh, many of you already know his name was Jonathan. And so today we're going to see how Jonathan uh, modeled a capacity to love. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a capacity to love to the extent and to the depth that is so often missing in our lives. And so let's talk about Jonathan today. Uh, Jonathan's father was King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. This means that Jonathan was the heir apparent to the throne. And he was a very deserving heir to the throne because he was a very bright young man. He was gifted. He was, uh, he was uh, a warrior. I mean, he, at one time he routed a, a, an army by himself. So he had these great leadership skills as well. So <clears throat> don't sleep on, on Jonathan. Uh, we know that Saul was a great leader until, of course, he, you know, he fell because of disobedience. But uh, Jonathan himself would have made a great king. If God had chosen that to continue, he would have made a great, great king. He was positioned to be the king and uh, he was prepared to be the king. But what was really impressive about Jonathan wasn't so much his position, his preparation, but what was really impressive about Jonathan was the condition of his heart the condition of his heart, because Jonathan had a loving and a selfless heart. He had this huge capacity to love, and this is something that we learn from Scripture, something that is not hidden. We don't have to dig and find out, oh, he, he, he had a loving heart. No, it's very plain in Scripture. It is so plain, his capacity to love was so plain and was so clear that some people have misunderstood it, and have chosen to interpret it, uh, not just in an incorrect way, but in an immoral way. And you'll see what I'm talking about here in just a little bit. So 1 Samuel 18, beginning with verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Verse 3 says, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now what is that about? We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But this story that we just read right now takes place immediately after uh, David killed Goliath. And after this event, everybody was talking about David. Everybody's talking about 
David and everybody's praising David for what he had done. And uh, Jonathan's attention though, uh, like the rest of the people was drawn to, to David, but they were drawn to David because he had killed Goliath, his fearlessness, his courage, his strength, his leadership. But Jonathan's attention was drawn to, to David as well. Uh, and when they met, their spirits, the Bible says, were knit together. In other words, there was an immediate bond. Jonathan loved David. Uh, way beyond the bond that existed between me and my friend Robert. Uh, whenever he leaned over and said, hey, you want to be friends? And I was like, sure. We became friends and we were close friends. Uh, uh, his dad was uh, his, he came from a Christian home, from a Baptist home. We played baseball together. His dad was very nice uh, to me, you know, and to our family. Uh, I remember that well. Uh, but this, this goes way beyond that. This goes way beyond that. There was an immediate bond. Their hearts were knit together. Jonathan loved David. Uh, please, I have to say this. I alluded to this earlier. Let's not view this scene through the lens of our modern, fallen, sinful culture. Because a lot of people will look at this story from this point on and they'll say, I don't know, that's a little weird that Jonathan loved David so much. And there are some that will actually teach that, this is an, that Jonathan and David is an example of a same-sex relationship. And they say, it's right there. And there's another portion that we'll read here in just a minute toward the end that they'll say, see, it's even clear right there. Uh, but that's not what it was at all. It's just, you know, it, it, we, again, let's not ever interpret biblical stories, a narrative of the Bible through, you know, our modern eyes and understanding. The world was way different back then. That culture was way different back then. Their love was, was a deep love. It was a sincere love. And, and, and the fact is that it really wasn't unusual for two men to enter into a covenant of brotherhood, such as the one that Jonathan and David began on that occasion. That was not that uncommon. But today we read about Jonathan loved David and it's just a little uncomfortable. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Uh, and, and that's something that was not uncommon. Uh, you know, Jonathan loved him and and by loving him, he, his capacity to love was so great and his love for him was so great that it caused him really to lose uh, some of his position. Now, I said, Jonathan himself was a warrior who, like I said earlier, almost single-handedly had defeated two groups of Philistines. Maybe that's why he felt a connection with David because David killed Goliath, the Philistine, the champion of the Philistines. Whatever it was, they became one in spirit and Jonathan initiated this covenant of love. What's happening here is a covenant, right? It's more than, hey, you want to be friends? But Jonathan is initiating a covenant of love and friendship by giving David his royal clothes. Remember, he was the son of the king, the heir apparent to the throne. He wore the royal clothes. And so by giving him his royal clothes, he's initiating something here. He's initiating a covenant of love and friendship because it was considered a special mark of respect to be given the garments of a prince, to receive the garments of a prince. 
The gift of a belt, you give him the belt, the gift of a belt. I mean, that was a token of, of the greatest confidence and affection. That was a sign of the greatest confidence and affection. The, the gift of, the, of a belt from the prince to a commoner, as it were, was something that was highly prized. If you remember the story, we talked about this last week of uh, Absalom uh, revolting, leading a revolt against, against his own father, David, and um, Joab, who was uh, the general, the leader, the, the, the commander of the army, of David's army. Uh, he, he wanted Absalom to be killed. David, the father, didn't want him to kill him. But I mean, how do you, uh, uh, you know, quell a, a revolt without killing the leader of the of the revolt, and so Joab, the commander of the army, wanted Absalom killed so much that he, he said, whoever kills him, I will give him a warrior's belt. So that, these are not just the belts like the ones that we wear, guys. I mean, this was something significant. Now, so here's again, here's Jonathan, the heir apparent to the throne, giving away his clothes, his royal clothes. David... He had just killed Goliath. People are singing the praises of David. Jonathan could have said, you know, I don't like this because I'm going to be king next. And yet everybody is singing the praises of David. Saul didn't like it. Saul, the current king, Jonathan's father, didn't like to hear people. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. He didn't like that at all. It angered him. And Jonathan could have felt the same way. But he had no jealousy, he had no envy, he had no ill feelings. He didn't feel threatened by David's popularity, even though David was being treated, like I said, like a celebrity. How is that possible? If you were in his shoes and, and, and somebody is stepping in and taking some of the, the, the glory, you know, some of the praises that really you should be able to step into in time. I mean, it's not your time yet, but... You can see like, this may not work out well for me. How do you not feel some kind of, you know, discomfort? Maybe, you know, because none of us ever feel jealous, right? None of us are ever envious. Uh, How do you not feel that? Well, Jonathan's heart was so full of love for David that he didn't. And he acted on his love by giving him the very royal clothes that were so important to him as uh, the heir to the throne. So why? Why did he do that? Why did Jonathan make this covenant and seal this covenant with David? Well, first of all, what I want you to see here, this is my first point. What I want you to see here is that love is something that takes the common and it makes it it holy. Love takes the common things of life and it makes them holy. In other words, Jonathan somehow understood that this relationship, this connection that he felt was inspired by God. Uh, And there's no doubt that he was acting on God's impulse, God's leading. He was giving David God's love. He he turned it from uh, just something common that they did back then to a holy experience. A holy experience. Now those of you who are married understand that your relationship is a, a holy relationship, right? Your marriage is a holy covenant of love. Not just a contract, but it's a covenant. A covenant is much more 
than a contract and a marriage contract. Every marriage is a holy covenant of love. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews says that even, get this, even the marriage bed is undefiled. Even the marriage bed is holy. And that says something about our relationship, right? But here's my question. Do you see all your other relationships in life as relationships of love? And maybe I shouldn't say all of them, but all your close relationships. Obviously, I'm not going to have a relationship of love with, a, you know, with a, the clerk down the street at, at Walmart. But uh, your close relationships, do you see those relationships as, a, as relationships of love? Do you see your relationship with your church family as a relationship of love or relationships of love? Do you understand that your relationship, your association with your co-workers that you spend a lot of time with and you learn about their family and their, their friends and you learn about their dreams and their desires and your, their problems, uh, do you understand that that should also be a relationship of love? Have you come to the understanding that every association that you make, whether, uh, like I said, at, at your children's school with the parents that you're spending time with and are connected with, you're moving in that circle, or maybe if your kids are in sports and you, you move in that circle with those parents and so on, uh, have you made uh, that, uh, do you have that understanding that every association you make can be and should be an association of love? And I and I mentioned, maybe not so much the clerk down the street, but even that, not, because uh, love doesn't have to be you know, an, an intimate thing, but you do things when you speak to people out of love and respect, that server at the restaurant who got the order wrong, or the cook who got the order wrong. Do you see all those relationships as relationships of love? What I'm saying to you today, that every association that we have, no matter how common, can be made holy by our love. Every association that we have, no matter how common it might be, can be, can be made holy by our love. Do you have the capacity to love people the way that Jonathan loved David? And what does that mean? How did Jonathan love David? Well, uh, first of all, he loved David by deferring to him. By deferring to him. Because love defers to others. Love defers to others. What does it mean to defer? Do we have any Cornerstone Christian School students and graduates here who can stand up and tell us a character trait of love, of uh, deference? <laughs> I, won't, I won't call on you, don't worry. A lot of good definitions of love. Here's one that I like, uh, to de or def uh, deference rather. Uh, to defer means to submit to the opinion wishes or decision of another through respect. Now, sometimes we defer to people, but it's not through respect, right? Uh, if, if somebody, uh, my family asks me, where do you want to eat? I'll say, well, I, I don't care. You all decide. I defer to you because nobody listens to me anyway. Well, that's not out of respect, right? <laughs> that's not because I respect them. It's more like I'm so tired of not being listened to. All right. I've been known to say that. Okay, but... Um, no, a true deference is when we submit to the opinion, to the wishes, and to decisions of somebody else through respect, because we respect them. Jonathan, remember, was a prince. He was in line to be the next king, 
but he yielded, he deferred to David and he acted to position David. If you know the story, not going through the whole story, but he acted to position him to be the next king of Israel instead of him. How can he do that? Because of the love that motivated him, because love defers to others. Do we have the capacity to love like Jonathan by deferring to others out of respect, out of love, not out of anger? Yeah, go ahead. You don't listen to me anyway. I'll let you do what you want. No, that's not deference. So often, though, we do the opposite of what Jonathan did. We demand that our opinions be heard and that they be considered above the rest, not just equal to the rest, but above the rest. We can be so self-centered that we insist that everybody else defer to us instead of us yielding to them. And my friends, that is not right. Have you ever heard of Diotrephes? Diotrephes, apparently he was a a self-centered Christian. Uh, I know that sounds paradoxical, but uh, he was a self-centered Christian. Uh, In 3 John, verse 9, John wrote this, 3 John 9, he, he wrote, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. All right, let us never be described that way. Who loves to be first. Uh, My favorite description or explanation of this verse, I heard it many years ago when when I was a student teaching. This would have been 1981, I guess. I was student teaching, driving to uh, Moody High School where I did my student teaching every, every day. And I listened to Chuck Swindoll, Bible teacher Chuck Swindoll on the radio. And um, he was teaching on, on this verse. And he, he said that Diotrephes wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. I mean, that's pretty bad when you want to be first, no matter, no matter what. The, the reality is, though, that I deal with the same selfish temptation to be the center of attention. I do. It's there. Sometimes I'm able to squash that feeling and sometimes not so much. That's why the cry of my heart today is, Lord, make me like Jonathan. Lord, give me the capacity to love by yielding to others, by deferring to others in love and respect. I don't have to have things done my way all the time. I don't even have to have my way considered above everybody else's opinion. And so I pray that God would help me to serve others out of love and and deference. Philippians 2.3, Paul writes this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Wow, that's pretty plain. That's pretty clear. One year when I was teaching at Lakeview High School, I had a problem with my varsity women's choir getting along. The men's choir, the guys in the men's choir, uh, they got along well. Uh, they just, when we weren't singing, they just wanted to talk about football. Right? They just wanted to talk football. And uh, I guess close to half of the, of, the, of the guys in the choir were on the football team. So on Fridays, I would let them uh, talk about the game that night. And they're just all excited. And, um, and uh they, they, they got along with each other pretty well. Um, but the girls, that was a different story. They were always arguing and complaining. And it, 
It seemed to be getting worse. I mean, it was getting worse. It was a room full of strong personalities, maybe an inflated ego here or there. No. Um, finally, I decided, you know, I, we, we can't, we're not making progress, you know, here because I'm dealing with these situations. So I decided to do something about it. And so I gave him a lecture, which I was hated. You know, their eyes were rolled back, almost out of their heads, you know. But I gave him a lecture about uh, deference. I talked about what it means to defer. I mean, I even took the cornerstone character trait list. And I, and I, you know, and I took the definition of deference and, uh, and I made them uh, memorize that. Of course, I didn't teach them the scripture verse, but I made them memorize a definition of deference. And uh, I made copies and I put the definition on the walls of our room so they could see it. And I, and I talked to them. I mean, it wasn't an easy sell, but eventually they learned to, to stop and, and think before they started demanding their own way and, and arguing to get their own way. I mean, if nothing else, um, maybe they did that to keep me from lecturing them again. But, you know, demanding our way is something that we're all tempted to do at, at one time or another. Jonathan didn't do that. He not only deferred to David, but because uh, he loved him, he did something else that love does. He protected David because love protects others. Love protects others. So Saul was uh, jealous of David because the people of Israel treated him like a celebrity. Even though Saul was a king, they were treating David like a celebrity. We're elevating him above the king. So on more than one occasion, Saul tried to kill David. But he wasn't able to. And one of the reasons he wasn't able to is because Jonathan himself helped David escape. So here's Saul, the king, trying to kill Jonathan's best friend. And Jonathan, the son, is helping his best friend so his own dad won't kill him. And this angered uh, Saul so much, angered him so much when he, when he discovered that Jonathan was helping David, was protecting David from himself. He wanted to kill him and Jonathan was stepping in. Jonathan was giving him advice, do this, go. And so when the king found out, boy, here's how mad he was. He's already told him. When I was in high school, I was reading this story and I decided to read this story from the Living Bible. Now the Living Bible as some of you may know, was uh, a paraphrase. It wasn't uh, a translation. It wasn't a direct translation. It was a paraphrase. And so once in a while, I would read it because back then, all we had was the King James Version, and that was a little hard. I mean, that's a good Bible, Ronald, but it was a little bit hard uh, to understand in, in, in terms of modern translations. And so then this came along, and so I knew it was a paraphrase. I knew it wasn't a direct translation, but I liked the way it read. And so I'm reading this story, and I got to the part to where... King Saul discovers that his own son has been helping David and, and they were at a, at a banquet table and King Saul stood up and he raged against David and he told him this. He said, you S-O-B. But in the Living Bible, it didn't say S-O-B. It spelled it out. And I was like, what? I mean, I remember I looked around. I was hoping nobody was watching me read like they could tell me like, you, it, it spelled it out. Um, in future 
editions of that, they took it out. <laughs> I went back a few years, many years later, I guess I was already adult. I went back, I wonder if it still says that. If you find a copy of the Living Bible now, it won't say that. But that was like when it first came out. I thought, okay, that might be taking a paraphrase a little too, too far. So I looked it up. I looked it up in the King James. What does it say in the King James? And in the King James it said, you son of a rebellious woman. I thought, okay, well, I mean, maybe. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Bible translator. So, But I'm just saying that's how angry he was. I think it was actually, you son of a wicked and rebellious woman. That's how angry he was with his son. Because he protected David. Because love protects. That's what love does. For example, love protects the reputations of others. Love protects the reputations of others. Husbands, guard your wife's reputation. Don't make jokes at her expense. Wives, don't badmouth your husbands to your friends. When that gets started somewhere, you stay out of it. Guard each other's reputation. At your jobs, guard the reputation of your co-workers. That doesn't mean you let them get away with being uh, bad co-workers, but it, it does mean you, know, you, you don't gossip and talk bad about them because you know, it makes you feel good. The reality is it, it makes us, you know, the, the carnal side of us, it makes us feel good when we tear somebody down and we kind of step back and say, oh, yeah. And so we got to be careful with that. As a church, let's, let's not only guard the reputation of each other. I think you'll do that well. I think you do. But let's also guard the reputation of other churches. It's not up to us to judge what uh, other churches do so that their credibility will drop in the eyes of others. Well, yeah, that might be a big church, but how did they get all those people? Hmm, makes you wonder. No, we don't have to. We don't have to talk about other churches. We're, we're all doing the same thing, trying to reach the lost and trying to comfort the hurting. Love doesn't allow us to do that. We must guard each other's reputations. So we protect the reputation of others. Love protects the hearts of our children. This has been true for a long time, for, and forever, and continues to be true, and some would say even more so now. Love protects the innocence and the pure hearts of our children. This is why you as parents, I know you do this, you guard what your kids are watching, don't you? You guard what they're watching and how much time they're spending, whether it's on TV or on their tablets. And their tablets are so uh, great babysitters, aren't they? <laughs> Smartphones and tablets are great babysitters, but we got to be careful. Guard their hearts and minds from uh, evil influences because we don't want their minds to become accustomed to the evil, the, the prevailing evil spirit of this world. Our hearts and our minds can become accustomed, become accustomed to certain things that we guard them, uh, guard their hearts from innocence, whether it's something they might watch on the internet or a movie, uh, music, or friends. Love protects. Love doesn't just indulge. Love protects. And then the final point about love is this. Love, Jesus said, is the proof of our discipleship. Love is the proof of our discipleship. Here's what Jesus said in John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Read that again. A new command I give you, love one another, period. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the measuring stick by which my life will ultimately be judged will be, did I love my brothers and sisters? Did I love others? Did I love the hurting? Did I love the lost? Did I love the the needy? My life and commitment to to Christ is not going to be measured by how how, how hard I worked or how much money I made or how many degrees or awards I earned. It's going to be measured by whether I truly loved others just like Christ or as Christ loved me. Now, maybe it was easier for Jonathan to love David because for them it was a mutual commitment. You know, the focus in in the biblical narrative is the the love that, uh, that Jonathan had for David. But certainly David also loved Jonathan. We see this. Uh, In fact, um, when Jonathan died in battle, he died a tragic death in battle. David was grieved and he wrote a song. He wrote a lament for Jonathan. And here's part of what he wrote in 2 Samuel 1, 26. He said, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful more wonderful than that of women. Now, this is another verse that people, I think, purposely have misrepresented and say, see, that shows that they were in a same-sex relationship because he said, love is more wonderful than women. No, all he's saying is that this love was deeper than a romantic love between a man and a woman. There's a, I think it's a new, um, uh, and, I forgot what it was, a new version that I looked at this week, uh, a new translation, one of these modern translations that, that uh, translated this, your love is, is more wonderful than uh, a man for his wife or a wife for his man, for his uh, a woman for her husband. So that's, a, that's the gist of this. Okay, so let's not, again, let's not read this with, uh, through the lens of a broken culture. David loved Jonathan. He loved Jonathan. That's why he grieved for him and he wrote this lament for him. But what if, what if we love someone who doesn't love us back? What do we do? Well, I tried. You know, he's unlovable, she's unlovable. Or what, what if we love someone who doesn't deserve our love? They don't deserve our love. The way they've treated us, the way they've acted, the way they've treated other people. What if we love someone who actually hates us? Somebody who actually hates us. I mean, are we right to withhold our love for those people? My answer is, and not my answer, but God's answer is never. Never withhold your love from anyone. You you may not be given an opportunity to express your love to people who don't love you back, but never stop loving. Even if you can't express it to them, don't stop loving them. There is no advantage to a life that is lacking in love to anyone. No advantage to that. Why would we do that? That doesn't raise us, you know, elevate us above them. It doesn't do that. So I think our, our uh, prayer today is 
that we would learn to love as purely and as deeply as Jonathan loved David. How can I be a Christian role model by loving like Jonathan? Love like Jonathan. How can I be a Christian role model? Uh, be optimistic like David? Love like Jonathan. And I want that to be our prayer and our desire and something that we work toward. We're not going to walk out of here and, and immediately we're just going to love like Jonathan if we haven't been. But we can work toward that because the Holy Spirit wants to do that work in our lives. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads as we finish with the prayer today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example the model of a pure and a devoted life. Dear God, I confess that I haven't loved like Jonathan. I confess that I've been selfish. I confess that I've demanded my own way. But today, dear God, today I want to begin a new way of loving. I want to love like Jonathan. I want to Follow his model and model that for others as well. So God, I ask that you would teach me to love. Teach us to love. Help us to love. Lord, make us like Jonathan. Give us his capacity to love. I pray, dear God, that as we surrender ourselves to you, you would begin this work in us. A work that would transform us into men and women who love like Jonathan. Men and women who ultimately love like you because you loved us while we were yet sinners. You loved us. But we were yet sinners. You gave your life for us. And so today, dear God, we give ourselves to you. We surrender to you, Father. Teach us to love.